Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Welcome to the Fighting on Film podcast, the podcast all about classic and obscure war movies. From the Normandy landings to the days of chivalry and swords, if it's been captured on film, we're going to try and cover it. I'm Robbie of RM Military History. I'm Matthew Moss of Historical Firearms and the Armourer's Bench. Hello, welcome back to Fighting on Film. First off, we want to say hello and welcome to our new Patreons. We had a couple of new members, and we won't say any names, but... Um, we want to thank them for their patronage and supporting the podcast always means a lot to us. It does indeed. It really does. Really nice to see. Helps us uh, ticking over the pod with all the hosting fees and renting movies and whatnot. And this week we have what, well, we have what we think is a little bit of a forgotten um, gem, bit of a hidden gem, Diamond in the Rough movie. And we are looking at 1943's Nine Men. Yeah, I think this might actually be my favourite British Army in the Desert film. It's the most action-packed. Strong contender, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's quite a few, obviously, but this one's a really interesting look at just a standard infantry section. It's a last stand movie. Um, oh, we all know Matt. Which we love, we love a last stand. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, it's not LRDG. It's not men on a mission. It's a group of chaps that were off on patrol. Uh, their truck got stuck bogged down in in sand attacked by enemy aircraft and yep. they found themselves lost in the desert trying to get back to to their lines and they hold up in a uh, uh, an abandoned hut and there's a there's a siege and it's it's kind of like I when I found the movie and I was talking to Rob about it, I was like it's like the way ahead meets Sahara yeah it is it's the easiest way to describe it yeah, yeah. It's a very no frills kind of movie, but in a really good way. There's no, there's nothing else attached to the plot. You know, there's no love interest. There's no, uh, you know, will command get get the message in time. There's nothing like that. It's literally yeah. just these nine chaps in the desert and their fight for their own lives. Basically, it's very yeah. It's very pure in that respect. It's very trim, but it's very hard hitting, and it and it's very well made. So I think I'll I'll kick us off with production this week. So the movie is produced by Ealing Studios. They're really well known for their post-war comedies such as Passport to Pimlico, Lavender Hill Mob, The Lady Killers. But they also produced a lot of war movies during the Second World War itself. Um, they were responsible for Went Their Day Well, Convoy, uh, Sander Metro London. You know, there's a lot of pedigree behind this movie in Ealing Studios, you know, as we know over here. And, uh, you know, certainly film, film fans will know their pedigree. And the movie was directed by a chap called Henry Watt. Now, he's a Scottish director. Um, he rose to fame uh, before the war, working for the GPO film unit pre-war. Um, and then during the war, he switched to doing propaganda documentaries. So he made Squadron 992 in 1939. He made the really well-remembered film uh, London Can Take It um, in 1940. Yeah. Fans of public service broadcasting will know um, what that one's from. Mm -hmm, it's the, mm -hmm. you know, it's a, one of their tracks. Um, they, he also did Target for Tonight in 1941, and then he was poached by Ealing to do this film because 
they had success, obviously, with Went the Day Well in 42, year before, um, and they used a documentary filmmaker to direct that. So they were going from like a realistic approach to their war films. So Henry Watt is poached from GPO, and right. he directs this one. Uh, it was made for an absolutely tiny budget of £20,000. Now, you know, that might seem like a lot in 1940 standards, but 1943, but it's really not a lot of money in any sort of sense. So uh, written by Watt as well, um, and it was originally called Umpity Poo. Uh, we'll explain what that means later. Um, and it was based on a short story by Gerald Kirsch. And the War Office helped out with the um, producing and making of the film. They didn't even look at the script, apparently. They, they were just like, yeah, that's fine. That sounds good to us. Um, and they helped out. So we have uh, men, men of the South Wales Borderers and the London Irish Rifles helping on the production. So all the men that you see, you know, like running around that aren't the main cast is, is pretty much those two regiments. And interestingly enough, the London Irish Meg Regiment asked for their leave to be cancelled so they could take part in the film. And apparently it was the first time in history that ever happened. Well, they got a beach holiday in Wales anyway, didn't they? Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. It's like, oh, do we want to want to leave? Or do we want to have a paid trip to Wales? It's like, come <laughs> on. Um, so, yeah, it was a shot in Wales at Margham Sands in Glamorgan. And Henry Watt does a fantastic job making those sand dunes look like a Tunisian desert. Yeah, it's when you find when I found out that it was shot there, I was like, that's impressive. What he does with what he's got is just it's really, really impressive. Yeah. And the music for this one was by John Greenwood. He worked um, on other uh, Ealing projects, um, most notably Santa Metro London. He did the, the sound for that. And it has a, um, a march in it called the Eighth Army March, and that was used to bookend the film. And that was by Eric Coates. And it was used by the BBC when they transmitted programmes um, out to the armed forces in um, the desert in the, in the war. So it's a nice connection there. And it initially had a limited release in London. Now, the movie gets really well received. Um, people really like it as a tribute to the 8th Army who'd been fighting. Obviously, by 1943, the war in the desert was turning. You know, we had them on the run. The Operation Torch had happened uh, late 42. So people could believe a film about a, a bunch of chaps, you know, but spoiler alert, winning a battle in the desert wasn't far from the truth um, at home. So after that, the film gets a general release in February and, and it just it goes on to get to be really universally loved. So Kinematograph Weekly said the picture accomplishes many tasks, one and the same as a pep talk for fed up troops and civilians, an exciting illustration of the science and practice of modern desert warfare and a worthy tribute to the men who have been and are still doing the fighting. And then I've got a review from good old Reg Whitley of the Daily Mirror. So this was on the Friday, the 29th of January just as it was uh, going into general release. So this is about a piece about um, Jack Lambert, a chap who plays the lead character. Matt will talk about the cast in a minute. But it says, Nine Men, who was directed by Henry Watt, who has made a good job as he did for Target for Tonight. The choice was a good one, for everybody will be impressed for the fine acting. The fight against the lack of water, sleep and ammunition is vividly pictured. Umpity Poo, a little bit extra, aptly describes what those boys pulled out at heavy odds in the Sam-swept desert. So convincing in the settings that it is difficult to realise they were created on the sands of South Wales and an Ealing studio. A first-class tribute to the PBI, a gripping story of self-sacrifice and heroism. Good review. Um, and lastly, just thought I'd want to just thought I'd say before we segue into uh, cast. The movie comes out a month before Desert Victory comes out. Yeah, I was going to ask about that. Where does it sit in comparison? Mm, well, the AFPU obviously that comes out a month before. And I've been reading some contemporary books about British um, British war films and propaganda and war. And it feels like Nine Men is a little bit overshadowed by the success of Desert Victory. Contemporary film historians think that Nine Men actually really sort of helped ease people in to Desert Victory. And it was nice oh, okay. to see yeah, that makes a sense. more smaller representation of what men had been doing and fighting and how they'd been fighting. It's much more war. personal than Desert Victory. Yeah, exactly. So when Desert victory comes out that's where we get all the sort of footage that we know about like there's the footage of that lad you know capturing that panzer driver you, you know the sort mm -hmm. of if you know the desert war you'll know the sort of images that desert victory um sums nice up. garages etc etc yeah, things like that if you haven't seen it it's, it's a great one to to find out it was a nice little prelude to that and uh i think nine men at the time it was very very well received and loved but i think it's been lost to time um and it's well worth it so matt you had the cast this week I do. 
it's a really interesting little cast because we've got some Ealing stalwarts, then we have some really unexpected uh, chaps pop up as well, uh, which, you know, they come from a background which is completely different to some of the um, the, the old sweats of, of Ealing Studios and the Ealing comedies, etc. So leading the cast uh, is Major Jack Lambert, uh, who is playing Sergeant Watson, and he is the commander of this, this section. Um, he'd previously been the Padre in the Captive Heart Squadron. He'd been... Um, in the sea shall not have them and he went on to do lots and lots of um tv tv work later on and he's one of two serving officers which appear in the film the second being uh, captain grant sutherland who plays jock scott and jock's sort of this um hard glasgow ex-policeman um and he hadn't had a, a very many roles before this he'd been in like one or two pictures um and he, he was a captain instructor at a battle school during the war um, and he took time out from that to to be in this film because there's a there's a an article that Rob found in the documentary uh, newsletter from February '43, and it talks about how they struggled to cast um, because the army wasn't willing to release people who hadn't been actors previously. Okay. So if they'd been an actor um, before the war, they were sort of happy enough to allow people to go off on short secondments to make films. Sort of like how Niven does the way ahead because people know who Niven is, I guess. Exactly, exactly. And there's no big name in this, um, really. You've got a few faces that are recognisable, like like Lambert and a very young uh, Gordon Jackson, who very plays a, a chap called the Youngun. Um, he isn't given an actual name. He's he's 19. Um, he's an apprentice in, in Edinburgh before he joins up. And... Jackson himself had uh, had an uncredited role in uh, one of our aircraft is missing. And then his first credit, his first big speaking role had been uh, the former went to France, which is another reeling film that Rob mentioned earlier. Yeah. Um, and then of course it's later MacDonald in the great escape. Um, and he's Jock Carswell in it, Crest file. And he's in loads of, of TV as well. Like the professionals. Head of um, CI5 in that one. Yeah. Yeah. You've got to mention him. Um, and yeah, he, he's probably the most recognizable in terms of longevity. Um, but if you're familiar with the Ealing comedies, then you'll recognize some of the other faces. You've got um, a character called Banger Hill, who is um, ran a coffee stall in, in uh, Civvy Street. Apparently, that's the backstory to the character, because there's there's a lot, lot of little bits of exposition where he, he uh, introduces the section and, and talks about their backgrounds and, and who they are. And he was played by Frederick Piper, who was a war reserve constable, um, which is really interesting because a, a lot of them are credited with their ranks at the time. So, as, as I said, Lambert was a major and, and Sutherland was a, uh, a captain, but Piper is also credited as being a, uh, a constable. And then we've got Bill Parker, who is played by uh, Bill Blewett, and he's supposed to be uh, the old sweat soldier served in India. Um, and he had an uncredited role in The Form Went to France as well. And he'd been in Watts' 1936 documentary about a small Cornish village. Um, mm. And he was a postman and he'd sort of become a bit of a household name from that. And the film was called, it was named after him, it was called um, The Saving of Bill Blewett. Then we have uh, Eric Micklewood playing Gordon Lee, who's a, a younger actor. And he has a bit more of a, um, a clipped RP, posher background to the, to the other men. Um, and, and in that uh, documentary newsletter, uh, Watt admits to being a little bit reluctant to cast those sort of actors. And he looked at a lot of people for the role that Lambert was cast in. And some of them were either just terrible actors or they were just too rada. They were too, too posh and clipped, in his words. Because this is what Ealing Studios are doing at the time. They're making movies that have more sort of quote unquote real people in. So you see, with like in which we serve, it's got members from all walks of life. By this point in the war, I think we're trying to show, or the film industry is trying to show more that we're all in this together for the long haul. So I think this is why you get less clippy sort of you get less sort of like that. You get more bloody hell, mate. We're gonna fight the cherries and the Italians. Oh, there's some, there's some great, great slang and banter in this one. So what he, what freely admits in the article he wrote that um, he'd gone a bit too far. And right. the producers suggested, well, it'd be a good idea to have someone from that background just to, to level things out and show that people from all walks of life are, you know, in these in these battalions. 
And he was later um, actually had an uncredited role in Von Ryan's Express. Oh, but before he made this, he had been in Went the Day Well, which you mentioned earlier, Rob. Mm-hmm. I think one of the most interesting characters, though, is Jack Hosman's uh, character, um, yes. Joe Harvey. So Sergeant Jack Hosman had been a prisoner of war captured in France in 1940. He escaped not once but twice, managing to get back through to Britain, uh, I think through Spain, I think. He was given the military medal when he returned. I think Rob's going to mention it in a moment, but he wrote a book about his escape. And apparently on set, he was he would take the crew aside and the cast and he would he would train them on weapons drill. So all those great little shots of them of them cycling rifles and looking like they know what they're doing is partly due to um, Horsman's training that he was doing mm. on the side. It's kind of like a military advisor almost. But his book is called A Thousand Miles to Freedom and it was about his experiences in the early war. And the Kinematograph Weekly, again, they had a little, a little article saying that the, the book was now available and, and saying how it added to the authenticity of nine men because obviously the, the cast, it says about the casting and how Watt wanted, uh, you know, authentic men in the movie. So yeah. it, it all ties up really nicely. He'd never been in a film before. He wasn't an actor. No. But he does have that lovely little scene where he, he gets, um, there's a bit of a ricochet in the loophole that he's looking through and it knocks his helmet. Um, and he has this lovely little line where he, he, he says, well, I never thought these bloody things were any good, you know? And, yeah. and he delivers it really well. So I, yeah, he he was definitely competent and he you know stood his ground amongst a cast of probably more professional actors. A couple of other really interesting uh, chaps in there. We had Fred Griffiths, who is briefly seen at the beginning of the film, and he's uh, a sergeant in the sergeant's mess that, that uh, Lambert's character goes and has a chat with, which is a really nice little scene, actually, because he's just like nice. sat there going, how's your garden? He's like, oh, I got it. On my last 48 hours, I got it into, into, into shape, and we've got some decent tomatoes this year. Nine Men was actually his first uh, on-screen role, and later on he, he was cast as Gracie in The Cruel Sea, and he also had a small role in 1958's Dunkirk. And later on, I think his last war film role was uh, appearance in Dad's Army in 1971. And he was known for regularly playing a taxi driver in a lot of Ealing films. Uh, then we have uh, John Varley, who plays uh, Dusty Johnson, who is a uh, he's, he's the officer's Batman, basically, and he's badly wounded. Um, he has a few little nice little scenes with Lambert where um, Lambert's giving him some water and he's he shouts encouragement during the first battle. Um, sadly, he dies uh, not long after. And he, he'd uh, previously been in In Which We Serve. Uh, he'd later go on to be in uh, Somewhere on Leave. And then he had an uncredited appearance in uh, The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp as well. Oh, nice. It's a good pedigree yeah. there. Yeah. So I think finally, the um, one of the, the more interesting ones I, I came across was the uncredited appearance of Giulio Finzi, who was an Italian mechanic. Uh, in in the actual film, he sort of pops out of uh, an armored car, which we are going to talk about in a moment. Which is, it's a great little scene. Anyway, he pops out of the top of this armored car out of the turret when the chaps go on a night patrol to try and scrounge some water out of the out of the armored car. Finzi had been a um, a solicitor in Italy before the war, but he was a Jew, um, so he managed to escape uh, to the UK. And for a time, he was held as a an enemy alien, um, but he was released after, I assume, some vetting. And he somehow became involved in the film. Uh, one of the things I found about him, he, he joined the Pioneer Corps in about 1940-41. And perhaps that's how he came to hear about the film being made and he was able to, to get the, the part in it because he provides a little bit of Italian um, that's, I think, overdubbed in places and the, the, there's a bit of a little bit. conversation between the mechanics that are trying to get the, the armoured vehicle to work again and... But yeah, so he's a really interesting individual to pop up in this. And he was never in any, any films before or after this. But you've got to wonder, how did he become involved in the, in the production? Yeah, exactly. Interesting. Really is. I love these little stories that we, that we uncover when we look at the cast and things. It's just another, another really interesting thing about this movie that it throws up. You know, it's like, wow. Yeah, it's not a, a big name cast, but they're all very competent. Um, and a lot of them have got really quite striking and interesting backstories that you would not expect because yeah, it's not you know it's not a film full of big names you know Lambert was an actor but he was a boxer as well so he was famous dually famous I guess I know he turned down work from Hollywood before the war to work in England mm. 
um, which yeah. is interesting. This is what uh, Reg Whitley from The Mirror said about Jack Lambert. So it was he who was selected for the role and he was persuaded by producer Michael Balkan um, to secure leave from the army. And the choice was a good one, he says, for everyone will be impressed by the fine acting of this typically British sergeant. Carries it really well. And mm. I, he, he's not too wooden. He's not too no, familiar not. with the men. He knows how to address soldiers. He, it yeah. looks at ease. He doesn't look like an actor playing an NCO. And no. he has a, a few scenes where there's, you know, there's some great NCO uh, belittling and banter. Yeah, um, he does. He does get that really well. Yeah, he does. Those chaps he's ta- he's he's drilling with and, and talking to in the barracks. We'll talk about the plot in a minute. Why this all makes sense? Were actual serving members of the the London Irish Guards. They were told to ad lib, um, mm-hmm. so they're not actors there either. So, I mean, that's another level of realism. So I feel you know Lambert is genuinely being an officer's NCO talking to real men, and it, and it looks yeah. very convincing. So to go into the plot a little bit before we go on to the alley tally. So the film's quite interesting in the sense that it's told through flashback. So the bulk of the movie is a flashback. So it starts off, we're at this battle school somewhere in England, it doesn't say, and you get a nice uh, montage of men running through woods, crawling yeah, on the like barbed a, wire. Like an assault course. An assault course, yeah. And you've got in, in cement, um, incremental parts of Watson, you know, bossing them around, um, basically set to the, the Eighth Army March. And then... They come in. They've done their training. They've done their lot. You know their their uh, battle school training for the day, and they're all they've all had enough. You know they're dirty. The the men are annoyed. Like you know they're they're throwing their kit around. One of them's like, oh, I'm cheesed off. I'm browned off. I am. You know they're giving it the mm-hmm. whole sort of forties anger. There's that great bit where he, he turns the wireless on and it's some very pompous radio program discussing yeah, like radio the four intri- intricacies. Yeah. yeah, of of an orchestral piece, and then he flicks onto another station. Another, another, um, and it's another program which is like opera singing. And he's, he's just... then you get the lads like saying about how they sort of had it and they're all tired. They're fed up of training, they want to crack at the Jerry's. That's it, yeah. A bit like the way ahead, annoyed at training. As soon as that started to develop, I thought, my god, this is so much like the new lot and the way ahead. It really is, it, yeah. It, it just clicks with it so much. It's that dynamic of a group of. Uh, a group of soldiers and, and an NCO, isn't it? It's really interesting. Yeah, and he gives them a he gives them a sort of a a little bit of a speech where he's like, "Oh, you know, you lads need to be trained. You need to understand why this is important." Um, yeah. And he goes, "I'm only trying to give you umpety poo." And they all look at him a bit perplexed and like, "What the fuck he's talking about?" And he goes, "Oh, it's French. It's um un petit pois, petit pour. It means a little bit something extra. I'm trying to do that with you. You don't understand, like." Certainly saying to the audience, look, you know, or, or anyone who's a soldier in the audience, like propaganda sort of thing, like, we need to do a bit extra to win this war. Yeah, sort of it. That mm-hmm. line felt very much, he might as well have been talking directly to camera to me. He sits down, he goes, well, I'll tell you a story. You know, if you want to know about fighting, I'll tell you a story of, of me when I was in one of them desert shows. And, he's, and it sort of cuts, and then that's your main story of him chatting about what happened to him and his men. So, and I like the, the setup is nice. I can, it, it fits quite nicely in. Yeah, I really like the way that he continued to to do it conversationally as what he was describing began to manifest as the flashback, and then it would cut in. It cut from him doing the over overdub of the of the. I'm recounting a story to him giving someone an order, and it it just yeah. worked really well. It's one of the one of the best moves to, into a flashback. It does really work. It really flowed quite quite it does well. Flow nicely, yeah. And then we get, you know, the start of the, the start of the men and they're all dealing in the desert. They get strafed by an NE109, their, their truck gets blown up and then they find themselves in this burial hut. It's a nice bit of model work, that 109, isn't it, though? Yeah, it looks good. Yeah, it's not really bad, well done. Not bad at all. So, I mean, it's another one of those little surprises that pops up in this film and you go, oh, wow, that's actually yeah. quite good. Yeah. For what is supposed to be like a low budget, mm. wartime, just quick off the cuff movie. It never breaks the illusion of being in the desert either. I think that's the thing that I like the most about it. It's shot mm. in such a tight way that you never feel like you're in Wales. On the evening of finding this hut, they finally found some shelter from the desert storm that kicks up. They finally find some shelter, but there's some Italian troops in the area and they're trying to use the shelter as well. And Jack Watson says, I didn't want to shoot at them, but I knew if we didn't, we'd have had to fight them in the 
in the hut and that's not good yeah um yeah. so they scarp any news i know only says look i knew we were in for it in the morning and that's your setup it's them holding the, the hut so in the morning they have a probably go more into alley tally about their kit and things but they have a little uh powwow um, as, as Jack Watson says, a conference and they talk about their ammo supplies and water supplies and everything else. And it turns out they've only got enough very ammo. Nuts and bolts. And I really very like Very nuts and bolts. Yeah. And it turns out they've only got enough ammo for about a, maybe a two days worth of fighting if they're lucky. Watson writes out um, his order for the day, which I really liked because it, mm-hmm. it, you, you sometimes lose the orders for the day in, in war movies and things. It's I like the added regimentalness about watson i really yeah. liked his character and he writes down orders for the day and it is to hold the hut until relief as number one number two is if no relief comes go on holding the hut and he pins it to the wall with the with the with the cartridge with a 303 round of 303 yeah. yeah and then that's where the main action starts it's only an hour and five minutes long thereabouts Very short. yeah but as rob was saying at the beginning it's a straightforward film so you just get swept along with it and you, you, you just enjoy the progression of this situation that the men are finding themselves in. Mm. And as I mentioned at the beginning, it's a last stand movie. And we love that subgenre of, of war movies on the part, obviously, because, because they're some of the most interesting. I mean, it's men in a dire situation and, and a lot can be done with that in a narrative and yeah. also a, an action sense. And you hear Watson's Watson narrates over certain parts. So, you know, he, he he gives it the whole sort of like I knew we were, you know, if we didn't get out, if we weren't going to get out of here, I know we'd have to fight them hand to hand. It was going to mm. be a bit of a run show. Um, and yeah, and I think it, it's very sort of representative of fighting men as well and, and how you deal with how you deal with men in that situation and like what you do. You know, it's it's not as much about, you know, boot, like way ahead is about how you become a soldier and i think nine men is how you act as a soldier mm. necessarily sort of how you have, they're two sort of similar things but they're two very different things this one's about you know training how training sets you up to be, to go into war with the way ahead but then how this one actually is well this is how your training actually affects you in a fight indeed and i think one of the most interesting parts of that is the bit with the water that he's going to give to um to the wounded soldier yeah. so he they, they laboriously all pour out a tiny amount from their canteens into this um into into a um, mess, tin. mess tin and he, he he puts it on a ledge while he's going to pick up the soldier and get him comfortable to to drink and yeah. he explains that there must have been a glint off the mess tin because they the italians put a burst and, and shot the thing off the windowsill and the water just gets poured into the sand basically it flips the tin into the sand and there's a beautiful really really beautiful shot of of the upturned mess tin and the water seeping slowly into the sand bubbling into the sand there's yeah. some really gorgeous bits of cinematography in this film mm. that work so well there's the use of detail close-ups which we'll come really back nice. to when we talk about ali tally etc <laughs> really good um but that bit, he's still kicking himself months or possibly a year later. That yeah. that was a stupid thing to do to put it on that ledge. Yeah, and that's in the, that's it. in that overdub the narrative, um, yeah. the narration over the top where he goes and I, and he, he's still kicking himself for that. And that links into that the choices that you make from the training that you've had and how you learn. And he's that's something he's learned. He'll never do that again because he's he still remembers it so vividly. Yeah, it's, it, he's very hard nosed, but you you sort of side with him because you're like yeah okay well, he's, he has to be because this is a very you know dire situation he's he's gonna he's gonna have to use all his wits and stuff yeah and he's very down to earth with the men you know like he's not kidding them that they're gonna get out there's there's a couple of sequences where he sends out two guys with all the mills bombs the grenades and the tracer from the Bren. yeah yeah and tells them to make as much noise as possible so he's thinking ahead into how he can knock the enemy off balance trying to trick so this the Italians yeah, think yeah. you've got more men. Yeah. So it shows him as a really re- well-rounded NCO, and he's more mm. than more than experienced enough to to try and deal with the situation. It's it's an interesting character piece, but at the same time, it's definitely trying to get across some lessons for people that are watching it. I think so. Yeah. So I think that probably brings us to Ali Tally this week.
It's time for Ali Tally on Fighting on Film. So, as our resident weapons expert, Matt, do you want to kick us off? Oh, I love this. It was so good. Like, there's so many um, desert war films where they're, they're either made as more character pieces and they're less action orientated, yeah. or they're made, you know, 20 years after the fact and they haven't got the, the equipment that, that's quite correct. But with the assistance of the, the war office, we've got an eight-man section armed with what they should be armed with at this point. They're lorried, have had to dismount, and their truck's been destroyed. What kind of truck was it, by the way, Rob? Do we know? I think, people can correct me if I'm wrong, because it's not Bedford this week. Um, <laughs> I think it was an Austin K5. I liked how they'd written Sue. They'd named yeah, it was the truck. Nice. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, it, I, like I think that. it I mean, was probably... trying to imply again that they've been in the desert for a while. You've got time yeah. to name your truck. Like, there's a nice little subtlety there. There's a lot of subtlety to this. To this there movie. is. There's a lot of really great little bits of mise-en-scene, which we'll get to in a, in a in a moment, but in terms of in terms of weaponry, they're all armed with uh, Mark III SLE SMLEs. The the kind of star of the show is the, the boys' anti tank rifle. Which, oh yeah, wow! When you when you think about it, it's I can't name many mm. films in which it actually appears and does what it's designed to do. In a movie sense, uh, narrative movie, this may be the first time it's ever seen on screen. I think it could well be actually yes. You'll know more about it than me. You wrote the book on it, but is, is the pier in active service in February 43? Uh, it's not widely known, that's for right. sure. Um, right. And it was tested. A number of them were taken to Tunisia. Um, okay. And there's some great footage on the Imperial uh, War Museum's uh, catalogue of, of chaps with them in Tunisia. Um, some of it filmed after sure. the, the fighting had pretty much ended. Right. Um, but its big debut was Sicily, obviously, and then Italy. Um, but yeah, the, the the boys' anti-tank rifle is the is the start. Well, one of the stars of the films because it gets overshadowed right at the end. And it's it's nice to see it being used as well. Like I wasn't, yeah. I thought it wouldn't get used. Placed in the hut in the background initially, mm. and you, and you think, oh, are we, we going to see the anti-tank rifle used? Yeah, it's are nice. We? Are we rubbing hands please, together? Please you know. let us. Use, please. <laughs> One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. <laughs> the minute you see it, it's like me and you. Obviously, people, you know, we know fans of the show love the kit as well as much as we do. But when you see that first, see that boys anti tank, you're like rubbing your knees. You're like, please, please let them shoot a tank with it or a truck or something, please. Because the, I think the thing to clear it up, you know, the boys anti tank rifle, it might get a little bit of short shrift now because people just look at this gun, this this heavy calibered rifle, and think, what the hell can that do? But you know, in reality, the boys anti tank is a, was a pretty decent bit of bit of kit for what it was needed for you know it's well, not well, yeah. meant to take on big tanks it's meant to take on like the small reconnaissance trucks you know those little italian tankettes it, it, you know good range mm. you, you make mincemeat of one it's um it's an unfairly represented rifle and it's nice to see it actually on having its day in this movie well we were so late to the concept i mean the, the boys only came in in the late 30s yeah um so we were criminally late to the concept and Anti-tank rifles as a whole, as a natural weapon, quickly got overtaken as being a natural anti-tank weapon. As you say, as an anti-armoured vehicle weapon or as a an anti-vehicle weapon or an anti-materiel weapon. Yes. They held their own throughout the war. Um, and there's analogues of those today that are still in use. But 
yeah, as you say, we in this film, which in, this is spoilers, this is my fave scene, which we'll get to. Um, <laughs> but it get it gets used for exactly what it would have been used, and that's it's great. And it's it's literally just like Chekhov's boys anti tank rifle. Really, isn't it? yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> we love that term. <laughs> so, and there, there's a as we mentioned, there is an Italian armored car, armored fighting vehicle that gets um, seen on screen, and it's not a um, it's a mock up. It's, it's a decent ish mock up. I don't know what the hell it's based off of, like the, the actual mock up, but I think it's meant to be a Lancia LZ or a Lancia LZM Italian armored car from the First World War, like there's sort of like a Rolls-Royce type-esque armoured car from the First World War. They've got that high turret with a machine gun in it. It's the best mock-up they could make, I think, of that. It doesn't look shocking, and it's not in the movie for so long that you can sort of pick it out and go, that's wrong, that's hokey. It does enough of a job. Um, And they were used in the Desert War, in the Second World War, by the Italians as well. So it's not not out of place. It's clearly a mock-up, isn't it? And I I thought I'd look at it as well, and I was racking my brain about what it is and another option that it could also be is a fiat tiny tripoli which was introduced in the 20s and it could be one of those because they both look really similar they do don't and they? it doesn't its bonnet isn't long enough no. to be a, a fiat tiny tripoli the little turret looks like it and it the kind of back bit where it scallops down That's and it does it. a bit look does look a bit like the lancia as well so they've probably gone well we've seen bits like that yeah exactly it's good yeah, enough because the gun on it looks ridiculous but this is where where the Italian bashing, shall we say, comes in. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't expecting it to be as heavy as it is, but, you know, uh, young and Gordon Jackson, he's like, oh, they've got a tank. They're coming. They're coming. They've got a tank. They come over the ridge. And Watson's like, well, you know, he's shocked. Um, and he, he jumps up on the Watson. Thinks it's actually out. a tank. Thinks yeah. it's a tank, yeah. And he goes, oh, no, it's one of those recce cars they've got. It's, I've seen better things at fun fairs. It's a yeah, toy tank. Unfairly, I think the Italians get get called out as, as this sort of second-rate force in the Second World War. Of course, they weren't as effective in the desert as the Wehrmacht or, you know, uh, the men under Rommel. But, you know, they did fight relatively hard. They weren't a pushover as no, no. much as people think. Um, there's a great book called Mussolini's War, actually, about the Italian army in the Second World War, and that is a cracking book. But, you know, they fight fairly okay. But I think it's interesting that in this movie we get a lot of sort of, oh, you know, don't worry, they're only Italians or you know, they must have Germans fighting with them because they're, they're putting up quite a bit of resistance. You know, it's sort of... Well, you this, get lots of those yeah. derogatory terms as well, don't you? Like macaroni munchers and spaghetti yeah. hound and... Like ice cream slurpers and all that sort of thing. Yeah. But one thing I did like about the SMLEs before I have my pick, I really like seeing, I don't know about you, but I love seeing that the earlier SMLEs with the magazine cutoffs and the rounded mm. firing... Was that a firing? Yeah, the pin? cocking. The, yeah, the cocking piece. Yeah, cocking piece. The round ones. Yeah, I love seeing that. It's such a nice little touch, and especially when, because um, Watson's one has a magazine cutoff on it, and yeah. every time he loads his bolt, it's really subtle. I watched it a few times to, to check what he was doing. He really subtly moves the safety on, and puts his rifle he does. down. It does. It was so nice to see that. Like his drills were immaculate. Obviously, serving soldier. Look, most of the guys you know, had, were in the, the forces. So it's yeah, really Horseman's nice to see. drilling them as well, offset, you know. Yeah, of course, yeah. So all the drills in the movie are very accurate. You know, the, start, the shooting stance, you know, reloading from the shoulder. It's really nice to see. It's it's the 8th Army on screen, isn't it? It's like, it's what we think It of, is, yeah. It? There's a little bit with one of the guys, I think it's the old sweat, and he loads in a charger. Yes, and lovely close-up. The charger, he strips the rounds into the breach, and then he just gently, like, knocks it off with his thumb as he comes back to the... Lovely, bolt home. Really nice. And that it's that's another one of those really gorgeous detailed close-ups. And we get a lot of those with the weapons. We get a lovely one with the um well a couple actually with the with the boys, which I'll talk about in a minute with the favorite scene. But we, we get a lot of those as well. And we get some really nice close-ups of uh, the officers Webley that 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 um the, the sergeant's character has takes over and he describes it as an ornamental extra which i loved yeah, when so they're they, doing that great little sequence of um the taking stock of what weapons they've got mm. uh they're like they we've got about 40 rounds a man um with and then whatever mills bombs we were carrying and it 12 a little mills cut, bombs or something yeah six or seven i can't remember and there's yeah. a little cut to uh an ammunition box which god knows where that came from because they weren't carrying one <laughs> 
uh, and it's got all the ammo piled up on top of it. And then he asks Jock, like, how many rounds for the boys? And he's like, well, there's 10 in the mag and one in the spout. And mm. that's just beautiful. Like, Lovely the, writing. The detail that they go into of just making sure that we know the 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 dieness of the situation, of how tenuous they are with with ammunition and water, etc. Those kind of little details are really nice. And that Webley, that, yeah. Well, I think we'll talk a bit more about the Webley about uh, when we talk about the the last battle in the film because it comes comes into shine there, doesn't it? But my my other pick is um, a weapon oh, yes. that I never expected to see ever. So I this was, was submachine gun gate for a, a few days, wasn't it, when we first saw it? <laughs> so when when we were watching it for the first time, I, I we spotted it. There's a little hand to hand sequence at the end, and one of the Italian soldiers has a submachine gun, which you you look at and you go that's not a, a beretta that's not a thompson standing in for a, a beretta that's something different and it's obviously something that's been taken as what i would call foreign representative it's a foreign gun that people wouldn't see in films or in newsreels and they go oh that must be italian because they've never seen it before they would just yeah. assume and he barely gets, gets um, like 2.5 seconds of screen time as well is it you don't even see it fired which is you, really you, i know weird. you would think i do this yeah. for a job wouldn't you and, <laughs> <laughs> but it's noticeable and if you like if you're interested in that kind of thing it's it, you can you can definitely spot it because it's it's a weird looking gun it kind of looks like a like a, a an m1928 thompson but it's squatter and it looks yeah. a bit sten like at the back like if a Matt 49 and a Thompson had a baby, it'd look like that. Yeah. 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 <laughs> but what it actually is, um, it's a veteran of the Spanish Civil War. Um, it's a Spanish Labora, which is a very high-end, actually, um, submachine gun that was made in Catalonia uh, by the, the Republicans. And God knows how that reached Britain. Uh, I was speaking to a colleague about this, and he was saying Mark Dinley, may have um smuggled some in um, right. before the war um but we don't really know Dianley obviously was later associated with uh baptise and we've spoken about him uh when we talked about uh it happened here and he was he was a very uh prolific collector of arms and small arms and there's a possibility that's how it ended up in this country so when we were watching the film i was i don't know what that is I, I couldn't place it. And I, I looked at it a few times and I said to Rob, have you seen this? Did you spot this? And he's like, yeah. So I thought it was a white then, didn't I? Yeah. Yeah. Because it, it does have that weird little wooden foregrip, mm. which is actually yeah. the magazine housing. Yeah. That's where the magazine goes in. So the gun in the film doesn't have a magazine. No. Because it fed from a 36 round magazine and they're quite long. You would notice it. Yeah. Yeah. So I reckon I, I, I was like, I, that looks a bit like this. So I, I went and grabbed my trusty Jane's recognition guide given to me by my granddad when I was six. You can see every boy should have one. <laughs> exactly. Um, so I, I'm there flicking through and I'm, yeah, yeah, it's the Spanish Labora. And I bet you that that gun in that book is the exact same gun that's in the film because there's yeah. no magazine with that one either. Yeah, interesting. I'm wondering, I'm wondering whether yeah. whoever took the photos for that book, because there can't be that many of them about. I mean, wow, there's one for the Spanish Civil War submachine gun fans among us yeah what a cool um, little link though really yeah, weird yeah, exactly yeah. and it's a nice link because as much of a link it is is i guess but one of the characters fought in the spanish civil war so there's a yeah. connection i guess there yeah Maybe a little bit mm. so for me this week i really liked the uniforms and i like seeing the different sorts of uniforms that were on show so early on when the men are doing their battle uh, battle drill at the battle school they're wearing denims um uh, battle mm. dress denims which is nice because yeah. That was used for, for, for rough working, you know, working out in the field, things like that. So it's nice to see. Um, and oh, interesting, those men actually have P14s in some of those scenes. They do. Some of them have nice got um, number, uh, number one Mark 3s, and then some of them do have P14s, which is an interesting mix, actually, when you consider yeah, that they were a frontline battalion that was pulled in for the film. And there's one chap with a, um, M1928 Thompson well there is yeah very briefly um and then w when we get to the desert the men have khaki drill uniforms they've got their shorts um and some of them have got 08 webbing some of them have got 37 pattern um but I, I i didn't look i couldn't remember if 08 was used in the desert 
I mean, I, perhaps second I didn't even notice. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're the old chap. Um, cause you can tell because his belt's quite thick. But at night time, they go on this raid to try and get some water from the knocked out. Sorry, we don't want to ruin Matt's scene, but there's a the <laughs> the the armored car gets knocked the, out. The boys does what, the trick, lads. I it's what fine. Did that? Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll let we'll talk about that in a minute. But they've changed into um, thicker clothing. Um, and first watch, I was like, oh, okay, they've got that their comforters cap comforters go on and stuff. Cap comforters, battle dress jackets. Uh, Watson puts on a lovely pullover. Looks really nice. Mm. And I initially was like, oh, okay, they're changing for their raid. Like they, they want to be a bit more darker for the nighttime sort of thing, trying to be a bit more you know, stealthy. He's there rubbing himself down with sand. Yeah, doing all that sort of thing. Yeah. But then on the second watch, I was like, hang on a minute. They're changing into warmer clothes because the desert gets cold at night. Yeah. And I thought it was a really nice little inclusion. And then in the morning, they've still got all that uniform on. They don't change out of it because it's, it's like, it, I just really like the inclusion. I thought it was a really nice little touch there. Um, yet again. Like it's another, great mise-en-scene, isn't it? Yeah, just a nice little detail that sort of make, it makes the film stand out. You know, it's, it's like we like the detail in Sea of Sand and this sort of is carried over, well, carried back, I guess. In, Did you spot Jock um, tying his bayonet on? I did. That was nice. Yeah, yeah, to to dampen the the rattling of it. Really, he's, nice. he's running a little bit of twine between the rifle and then round it, and then he ties it off just just to stop any rattle. And then I have to mention them because I was oh jumping in my seat when I saw them. So I won't this won't ruin the ending, but there is an appearance of Crusader tanks, yeah. and it's just wonderful to see Crusaders because I sort of was just like oh they've got a Crusade oh my god like I was like I was like wow you know like when it's it's quite I know a, I know. It, I'll talk about it in more de- in detail in my favourite scene. got to be but, the oh. only time a Crusader Mark One has appeared in an actual film. So nice. Yeah, it looks really That isn't great. stock footage. Mm, two of them. Yeah, two of them, yeah. Two of I them. I couldn't see where they would have got them from, but at that time of the war, they might have been range weapons or they would have been training on them. You know, they weren't frontline tanks anymore, I don't think. They might have still been used in the well, desert. Yeah, I don't maybe. know. Mark One's perhaps not, but... Perhaps mm. not in use as, as prevalently, but it's they're really nice to see. And yet, and yet again, it dates the movie really nicely for early Desert War, which is. And I was like, is that a Covenanter? And that would have been that would have been insane if it had been a Covenanter, because obviously they were more used as training tanks. Me and but... Matt were chatting, and I was like, no, it cannot be a Covenanter, Matt, because it hasn't got the exposed radiator at the front. I think you'll find it's a Crusader tank. Yeah, and then I, and then I double checked the uh, the number of um, wheels and such, and noticed that it has the. The bees are tore at the front, and I was yeah, like, yeah. I watch tank chat, so I know what I'm talking about, Matt. Come on, <laughs> another a, a shout out to the Italians. Uh, they, they look they look okay. I know some of the kit isn't a hundred percent, but so I managed to track down some of that. I, I um, I managed to, to, to find that the, the helmets they're wearing are actually Spanish M1926 pattern, very nice. I rather thought they than looked, the Italian, they look. They look similar, don't they? Very similar. Well, again, it's it's representative foreign. It, yes. They look yes. They look different to the British. They look different to German, which is nice that they. It's nice that they gave them Italian, an Italian enemy. Could have easily just gotten a load of World War One German kit that they had, and because they did that quite often. Yeah, uh, they're like running around in Stahlhelms, like they do in Sahara Forty Three. That's very stereotypical German. A lot of the a lot of those Italian uh, troops are armed with weird things like charger loading the enfields the long one that predates the uh, the smle some of them do have smles but some of them in the close-ups in that same sequence where the, the labora is seen yeah um they do have a kakano 1891 i thought i spotted it nice yeah nice so there touch. is some actual captured italian stuff in there mm. it's just nice to see the italians represented because i know there are mm. there are films about the italians at war but they're italian productions um, and obviously you've got Captain and they're Craig often, They're often just discounted. They are just discounted. Enemy, but they? in this film, they, they get a fair crack of the whip, I think. You know, they are yeah. seen as, you know, they are pressing home their attacks. They're not just giving up, you know. Um, but they do give up, but we'll, we'll talk about what they do later on. Um, so I think that concludes the Alley Tally for this week. And let's get stuck into fave scenes, because there are some, some really good scenes in this movie. Hello there, sorry to interrupt. I wanted to let you know that you can now join our supporting cast over on Patreon. As thanks for your support, you'll be able to help us pick films, submit questions for guests, have first pick on brand new and exclusive merch, and much more. Thank you for your support, 
Now back to the show. So Rob, favourite scene? So my favourite scene, I'm going to spoil the ending for everyone. Really sorry if you haven't well, seen it. Well, we always it. do, you know. Yeah, really sorry. Um, but um, my favourite scene's got to be the ending where they finally go in with the bayonet. So the movie... It's classic last stand. really good. So they know they're going to get overrun. They're running out of ammo. They've got the, the Italians have bought a mortar up. They're, they're shelling the position. Um, there's some mm. great shots of chunks of sort of like rock and things being blown off. Of yeah, masonry getting blown off the corners of it and stuff. I can't remember the character. I can't remember who it is. Jock's on the boys with the last two rounds. Yeah, Scotty's on the boys. And then and I think it's, is it Bill, the old sweat, who pulls the round out the wall? I think it might be him. So the round that's stuck in the um, in the order for the day, he turns around and looks for more ammo and he sees it, he pulls it out. The the order sort of falls to the floor, gets covered in sand. Very cinematic. Puts it in, yeah. And you get um, Sergeant Watson looks at him and says, look, remember in the end, we'll go out and meet them with Bayonet. And uh, Scotty says, oh, I've got two rounds left for the boys. Sort of, and he's, he's, he's giving it away, <laughs> giving it some. And uh, Watson goes, "Both make, make them both count, and then we go and we bayonet. So you know it's it's getting close. And then they go, right, okay. So um, they look around, and they've all run out of ammo. So they all sort of get hyped up. They fix bayonets. Watson's hyping them up. He says, are you ready? Are you ready, boys? And they'll go, yeah, yeah. He goes, come on, then. And you get this really nice shot. And it is, it is really well done. I really love this part of the movie. Mm. They all come out. They're, you know, they're all pumped up, ready for it. Watson comes out first. He's got his Webley. He's got a machete from somewhere. And he's charging. They're all hooting and hollering. You've got a nice close-up of every man running and screaming. And they all look, they've got, you know, they've got the bit between their teeth. They're not stopping. Yeah. And then they all meet a man. And they sort of, they get uh, gripped in hand-to-hand -hand combat. But then you've got uh, the rest of the men who are in a trench outside and they see them come out and uh, the old soldier, he goes, look at them. Come on, lads, it's time. So they get up and they go to meet the enemy and you get a lovely, uh, one of the guys uses his last round to shoot from the hip and taking it out when Italian. I think it's the, the fairly young uh, fairly posh young chap. Posh chap, yeah, he does Shouting it. Yahoo as he does it. And then we get some really nice choreographed fight scenes with Italian mm -hmm. troops and it's very visceral. I know that um, uh, what said in an interview later on in his career, the only part of the movie that made, made him feel uneasy was the hand-to-hand -hand combat scene because he thought he'd overdone it. Um, it's brutal, actually, for the period. Brutal, you know. On a, it's on a par with Bataan, I thought. Yes, it is. You get men that they're, they're choking each other, they're hitting each other with anything they can grab. There's a, there's a lot of bayonet work going on. Bayonets in people. I think uh, the young and gets his Fairburn Sykes out, and he's actually yeah. you see him stab people with it. Mm. And I wasn't expecting it. We actually get, um, well, it's not, it's a swear word. It's not a, the worst swear word in the world. But they get, you know, they go, come on, you bastards. Come on, you bastards. Yeah. yeah. I was quite surprised to hear that. Yeah. I was too. You know, unlike the town where they, where they machine gun out the curse words, <laughs> in this one, they do go for it. Um, and then it all is lost. You know, I'm thinking, because at this point in the movie, I'm, I'm caught up in the story. So I'm like, oh, God, mm -hmm. they're all going to die. Like, oh, my God. You know, and I'm thinking, Rob, it's a flashback. Come on. You know, you know that Watson doesn't die. But it really <laughs> draws you in. It cuts away and you see some some Austin Fives come. Like, yeah, see. some lorried infantry coming in. And the Eighth Army March starts and it's like, da -da 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 -da, and it sort of starts up. And then the Crusader tanks come in and I was just like, I was gone. You know, I was just like, yes, come on, boys. <laughs> I was really like, I was, I really like pumped me up first time I saw this film. I, I Honestly, I did actually get goosebumps when the Crusaders appeared. I, I think I did as well. And I it sounds like, weird, doesn't it, to on, say that about yeah. an eight-year-old yeah. film. But well, I honestly does. did. I was like, wow, I wasn't yeah. expecting that. And yeah. that's what, that's what you get with this film because it's, Obviously, it's not the biggest budget production. So no. when those tanks do appear over the ridge and they're there to save the day, then it's you know it yeah. has it still has the effect they would have had in the cinema. It really does. Um, and then the Crusaders come over the ridge line, and one of the chap says, "Look, sir, look!" And you see the Crusaders coming over the hill, and you get this really nice shot of of a, it's a low shot of Watson looking, and he goes, "Oh, the beauties, the beauties, the the bless them so much. God bless that wee man upstairs. The beauties, you know." He's really mm -hmm. elated. He's so relieved. And the uh, you get some beautifully shot scenes of inside the Crusader, yeah. um, of, of them calling out, give them a, give them a bit of HE. They won't like that. And they, and they fire yeah, a shot well, into the ridgeline. There's, and, and the... there's the tank commander, and he, he goes through all of the orders 
um, enemy on the ridge line, yeah. HE load on target fire. And you really get these nice. great close-ups, so like the breach being loaded, the, the the gun's trigger being pulled. He's looking through a vision slit. It's Proper great. Crusader pawn for like 10 seconds. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. I, the bit where he pops out the turret and the Crusader, like oh. the, the oh. turret lid just like pops open and it's slides back. It. It's, it's so nice. So good. It's so nice. Um, And then, yeah, and the battle's won. You get this nice sequence where they're all mopping up and, and mm. the chap who got captured early on, he comes back. And they're all they're all elated that the battle's over. And Watson's and then he sees the lad sort of resting and, it, and he immediately goes back into sort of hard-nosed NCO. And he's like, right, come on, we're back <laughs> at the truck in five minutes. Come on. And uh, you get the old soldier, he's like, some say good old Sarge. And the other one goes, but others say bleeding ankle biter. And then they're back, they're <laughs> back, to, they're just back to being like, you know, NCO and, and troops. And it's straight back a, into the dynamic. Straight back into the dynamic. And it is it's a beautiful end to a, a really good film. Yeah, because uh, the sergeant goes into the hut and he picks up the order for the day off the floor. And it's yes. just, it's in a little sprinkle of sand, mm. clears off the sand and he looks down at it and there's a lovely little little close-up detail shot of it. And you go, oh, look at that, it's pain. Look at that. Yeah, it's so it nice. It's, it's so, so good. good. And you didn't even mention the Webley because oh, God, that no, hand-to-hand fight. Yeah. Oh, my God. So he's got the, he's got the, uh, the poor uh, Lieutenant Webley yeah. Um, who gets killed uh, by the uh, the air attack. And yeah. he charges out with it in one hand and, as, as you said, Rob, machete in the other. Um, and he, he starts point shooting. And there's lots of these little little bits where they save one another. Mm. Um, and he drops like an Italian that's about to bayonet, I think. Um, I, we don't really see who it is because it's all moving so quickly. It's very well shot um, and it flows beautifully. Um, yeah. But he's he's firing from the hip, and you get lots of really nice close-ups of just his hand and the pistol as it's firing. Yeah, and it's very effective. I just that whole scene is so well done. It's beautiful, isn't it? Mm. It's, a, it's just a really great end to the film. Like I, I yeah. wasn't expecting to be so emotionally invested in that ending, but I really was. You know, especially seeing it for the first time, I really I really got into it. So Matt, what's your what's your favorite scene? Well, I think well, I know, as we alluded, alluded to, to it the yeah, whole as we alluded to, yeah. and we, we've spoiled half of it, but it's it's the scene with the the boys, and as I said, it's Chekhov's boys' anti tank rifle, and it's sat on this crate in the corner as they're all <laughs> getting ready for the battle. Yeah, um, and Gordon Jackson says there's a tank coming, um, and they they quickly identify it. it's not in fact a tank; it's a, a light recce vehicle, a toy um, tank, as he says. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, perfect. Perfect fare for the boys. Um, so. The sergeant takes Jock outside with it, who is he's he's the boy's anti-tank rifleman of the section by the look yep. of things. Um and he drops down in the doorway, and there's a lovely little um close-up of him twisting the monopod, which raises and lowers the elevation of the gun. It's nice. So he's he's laying he's laying the rifle on target. And the sergeant says, put two in the in the in the driving compartment. And he runs the bolt. We get a lovely close-up of the muzzle, we get a lovely close-up of the, the action. Um, we get some nice establishing shots of the of the car coming on and the Italians running around at the sides, and he puts two rounds into the into the uh, the driving compartment as ordered and knocks out the the armored vehicle. And it's just a brilliant little scene that shows the boys doing what it was designed to do: stop armored vehicles. Um, and it has the most satisfying sort of uh, sound effect where it sounds like a tin pot's being hit. When the, when, the, when the round hits the, the vehicle, it's so good. But that has to be one of my absolute favourite parts of it's the film. It's really nice. The sound the sound of that AFE getting hit is just beautiful. Isn't it? I loved it. It's great. And all the other guys are running blank through their SMLEs. So yeah. it, they're cycling things and it all looks The sound works really good. nice. Like nothing. It's, it's not like war movies now where everything is so overproduced and you know, like, it, and so well done. It it, it, mm. it just feels right. It feels natural, this one. It, it's, so yeah, there's I, a charm I, to this film. It, it's it's very effective. And there's not a lot of, um, not a lot of soundtrack through it. So it, it is quite atmospheric. As a sum of its parts, the film works so well because it's a small, tight cast character piece, last stand based. Yeah. It's very sort of Lost Patrol. And as I mentioned earlier, mm. Sahara, which is based on Lost Patrol. Um, yeah, it works in that same dynamic 
Again, we've bled over a final thoughts. Um, as we always seem to, as some of its parts, I think the film is it yeah. does a fantastic job of making this really tight little piece of cinema. It really does. I did some more research on how the movie was received at home. Obviously, because Desert Victory comes out right after, and it's one of the big the big wins for, for the British Army is the Desert War early on. Obviously, you know, getting our rear ends kicked early war, and it all seemed a bit lost and the army hadn't had a victory yet the ministry of information when they did their i forget what they were called we talked about them before on the podcast and um, when they take the how people thought of things week to week um i forget what they were called um oh i know what you mean the surveys they did yeah. surveys yeah. The, the surveys of regular people so it's from this uh, a book called british war films 1939-45 cinema and the services by sp mckenzie and he's writing about how Desert Victory was received and how Nine Men was received. So he writes, uh, Desert Victory, like Nine Men, represented a composite picture of the British Army offering different aspects to different constituencies. It was a well-crafted film. The victory it celebrated strongly buttressed by an ongoing English or the ongoing success of the Eighth Army. The powers that be would have been happy to read the response of a young London architect after seeing the film. It made you feel that at last the army was a worthwhile thing. I really like that. And I think this movie does the Eighth Army justice. I think obviously they don't need any justice doing. We all know the heroism and the the great victories that we had in the desert. But sometimes it's really it's important to think from a 1942, 1943 standpoint, when the war was, you know, we're not going to lose it, but it could go either way in certain theatres, you know. Mm, I know what you mean. Yeah. I think for for its own moving its own right, if you enjoy the way ahead, if you like those sort of movies about infantry, this movie is a, 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 such a great hidden gem. If you're an Ealing film fan, please seek it out because it's Ealing in a different light. It's different filmmaking from Ealing. Um, you know, Henry Watt's work is, is great as well. If you like London Can Take It, if you like Squadron Nine Nine Two, this movie is worth seeking out because he can do fiction. I recommend it. I mean, we don't score movies, but if we could score it, I'd give it an 11 out of 10 because I think it's fabulous. And if anyone from Talking Pictures TV is listening, or whoever owns the rights to this movie, get it on telly because it is, Mm. it's it's worthy of it. I imagine if you asked a lot of people, they would never have heard of this. No. I mean, we Um, ran a, we we ran a guess the movie type thing on the Twitter before we started recording and it took a while for some people to get it. So it it was quite interesting. Yeah, it, it definitely is, as you say, one of those hidden gems. Yeah. It's just so well produced. It's a really well crafted, well rounded film. It is. But it's got a solid cast. There's beautiful mise en scene, great cinematography. It has that undertone message, as you were saying, but it's also a straightforward last stand piece. And that always works really well as a dynamic. It's really and well done. For me, all of those little detailed close up shots of, the men uh, getting their kit ready, uh, working weapons, and then the inclusion of some of those surprising elements like the Crusaders, it really levels that film up. Yeah. And I think it is definitely one of my absolute favourite North African yeah. theatre films. I think it's got to be one of the best. That's another one for your for your watching pleasure. I know it's, it's a bit hard. Do seek it out, definitely. Do seek it out. It's a bit hard to find. Um but we will be giving away a DVD copy on the Twitter. So look out for that at Fighting All Film if you don't follow us already. And as some of you Patreons would have seen, uh, that we've booked some really good guests coming up. Um, mm. I won't spoil the beans just yet, but keep up to date with the Twitter and, and you'll find out soon enough. Um, yeah. Booked until March now, I think, aren't we? So that's quite interesting. I think we are. I'm working on some others. And incidentally, if you do join us over on uh, Patreon as a supporting cast member, what we'll be doing is with some of those guests, we'll give you the opportunity to ask some questions yes. uh, about the topics we'll be discussing in the film. Definitely keep an eye out for that as well. Yeah, I just had that okayed actually by one of our guests, which was nice. Excellent. So as always, thank you for listening. Uh, the next film we're covering is the Munich film, the new one that's going to be on Netflix. So look out for that. I've got a guest for that one too. Uh, and that'll be next week. So looking that forward to... That going to be very interesting. I think. I think it will be. Yeah, yeah. Jeremy Irons as Chamberlain. I, I, I like the sound of that. He, that's a good casting. A strong casting. Mm, yeah. Will it appease audiences like Chamberlain trying to appease the Nazis? We'll find out next week, everybody. Thanks for listening, everybody. <laughs> See you next week. Bye.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.